God, we thank you for we thank you for whatever circumstance it is that brought us here today, God. Some of us don't even know, um, but we are drawn. And, and we know if we look at your word that it says that you have called us. And so, Father, thank you for calling us. And thank you for calling us here today to hear truth. Um, Lord, may we be focused on, on what you want us to understand and know about you today. Um, and if we learn something about ourselves, then it's a bonus. Thank you that you love us enough that you sent Jesus. Um, thank you that you, you give us these pockets of time to get to know you in this deep, emotional, amazing, wonderful relationship that is bigger than any religion. It's bigger than any um, world thought system, God. It's relationship, and you love us that much. Um, Father, thanks for this time. We pray that we, we use it well to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, guess what? Get, can you guess? Lauren's here. Yay for Lauren. Um, I love, I, I want to say this first of all. Hey, guess what? It is, it is, it, you are more than halfway through. Look at each other and say, we are more than halfway through. I need enthusiasm, people. You killing it. You are killing it. And you're still here. You're still here. That's encouraging. Um, as we move into the second half of this letter, which I think is just going to be even more powerful because it's, it's Paul reminding us of, he's given us this doctrine, these three chapters of this is what we believe and now we get to walk into, hey, okay, so this is what we believe, now this is what we do with it. And so with that, I know in your groups you probably had a little bit of a restart, a reminder of kind of um, what we're doing here. And I want to thank you first of all for working hard. I want to thank you for taking the time. I do want to remind you of a couple things. As you sit down and do these homework pages, don't get don't allow yourself to get bogged down in the, in the have to and the rules of it. Instead, think of it this way. It is a gift. It's a gift. It's like this opportunity for you to sit down with the God of the universe, and he's going to look you in the eyes, and he's going to go, all right, now this one is just for you. And that's what this Bible study is. And so when you sit down and you open it up and there's two full blank pages, I want you to remember that this one hand, left-hand side is optional, right? And the purple text, this week you had a lot of purple text, didn't you? The book of Job, our, most of our favorite book, right? We all read that bedtime stories and now. It was good though, huh? But remember, that's all optional. And that's just going to enhance what you do on that right-hand side of the page. And if you've joined us for the first time this week, don't be intimidated by a blank page. It's just so that you have room to do whatever God wants you to do there. It's four questions. And that's what we're going to sit and go through today with Lauren as we take a minute at the beginning of each, each lecture time and kind of walk through those four questions and you get an opportunity to see how somebody soaked through that homework lesson on their own. So with that, my friend Lauren is going to share with us um, the, today what she found in one of her homework lessons this week. And so which day are you going to work on today, Lauren? I'm doing day one. Day one. Um, that was my favorite day. And, and tell me this. Like, w I love this. You guys missed this conversation that goes on in the back where we're talking about, I'm like, have you ever done homework like this before? Have you ever studied like this before? And so share a little bit about your background with this method, this SOAP method. And yeah, I, I have done the study. I have done SOAP before, um, before I knew it was called even SOAP. Um, I used to teach also. And so I got really good and, and loved going through scripture uh, sentence by sentence and breaking down and looking for repetitive words and little hidden, hidden gifts. Um, I loved uh, Genesis specifically and other books where it looks like it's a very easy sentence to understand. 
and there's so much packed in those seven or eight words. And so day one for this week, if this, this particular part of Ephesians is kind of like my anthem verse. This is my, I call it my Christmas, my Christmas card verse. <laughs> this is the one that's on all of my Christmas cards, and this is one that the Lord will bring to mind or show me in all different fancy, fun ways. Um, and then my other love language is John 6, which is for another time. But this particular verse is just when I saw this week was coming and then I was asked to do soap, that was like a little love hug from God. He said, okay, let's talk about your favorite verse. And then I thought, I don't need to even work on this. I know what this means. And I got humbled really quick. (laughs) I love that. Like when we were talking backstage, that's what we were discussing is the fact that you can have something that is like your Christmas card verse that you have in your heart and soul tattooed on your body. It's your thing, but God can still show you new things through it. And so that's what's awesome is that you're going to share with us a little bit about that. So start us with what was your title for this is day one, right? Day one. Day one. (laughs) My title is God can do anything. And I looked up Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 in the message. Um, I still love to go on Bible Hub or Bible Gateway um, and pull up different versions of the Bible and look up different versions. So if you don't do that, I highly recommend it. Um, But the message always puts it in a totally different spin. And I had never really noticed it before. And I'll read to you what it says. It says, God can do anything you know, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us, his spirit deeply and gently within us. Glory to God in the church. Glory to God in the Messiah and Jesus. Glory down all the generations. Glory through all millennia. Oh, yes. And the part that stuck out to me here was that he doesn't do it by pushing us around. He does it by working within us. And I'm not one that is fond of sweating, so I don't like to work out. But typically working means you're putting in effort. And a lot of times it's not something you totally enjoy, but it also brings the good out. The working is a gift that what comes after the working is something that you've accomplished or something you understand or a goal you're working towards. And so typically when he's working on us, which in my mind is another version of a storm or a season that's not one I would probably choose to give myself, there are gifts in the working of that. He is working something out for my good that I'll see on the other side. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. That's a lot for a verse that she thought she knew really well, yes. huh? That he showed her. Um, oh, he did more. Oh, but wait. <laughs> I got refined more. on day one. I got refined on day Guys. one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so other observations, uh, you kind of mentioned a few when you were sharing that yes. message, but what were some other observations that you saw? Okay, for, for me... This particular verse was always about, you know, praying expectantly and praying boldly for, you know, not just asking a little bit, asking for the whole world. Um, And where he broke this down for me is that um, when you're reading in... on your, on the left-hand page on 6-2, who is able to do far more abundantly. For me, far means like way more than I could even ask or imagine, like more than my mind can totally understand, more than I have the human capacity to even imagine or comprehend God can do. Um, that, that now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power that's at work within us, meaning that he's doing it through me. But that where it came for, to me this week was that it came, actually, it came to my sin or my issues or the anxiety I feel about situations going on in my life, the season I'm in, that's not when I would choose. And that's where he brought me, which I would have never made that connection. And it, he brought it through the area that you see in purple with Job. Job is a, is a book that a lot of people avoid. Um, I love Job. Um, that was a, it was a, a, a hug to my soul when I studied Job years ago. But for me, what it showed was that 
my sin or my anxiety or my issue that he's working on me or allowing in my life right now is not bigger than God. And when I think that the issue or the problem that I'm wanting him to rectify is something I shouldn't even pray about because it's so bad or it's so far gone or it's so I don't know what to do, he, he won't know what to do with it. I'm making that bigger than God. And so he went and took me back to Job to remind me, hey, let me check you like I checked Job. Where were you, Lauren, <laughs> when I set the foundations of the world? Where were you, Lord, when I parted the sea? That's where he took me because if I make whatever is weighing on me that's causing me not to focus on him, when I make that bigger than him, I'm in direct defiance of who he is. I'm, I'm pulling away as opposed to running too. So that's where he brought me in here. And I had, I had never seen that correlation in all the years I've loved this verse. I've never seen that. So to me, it just cemented the fact that every time you go into the word, no matter how many times you've studied a passage or a book, he will always open it up in a way that's relevant for where you are right now. Man. That's a lot. Ooh, that's a verse. lot. Good night. Yeah, that was just like a baby. <laughs> tiny Asking little part. receive. That's right. Um, <laughs> what about your prayer for this section? My prayer um, was just, Lord, help me search my soul, search my heart, and pull to my frame of mind. Help me to see where whatever I'm doing or whatever I'm not doing, help me to walk in your will. Mm-hmm. That my goal in life is to walk in your will. And, and Sometimes I wonder, am I in your will? Am I not in your will? I need proof. Where, where, where do you want me? I just want you to give me a little sign and I'll go that way. I just want to make sure I'm in your, in your will. And I will spend so much time spending trying to make sure I'm in his will that it almost paralyzes me to doing nothing. And my prayer is that, God, you know my heart is, is yearning to walk in your will and walk in your direction. And even if I've gotten it wrong, I pray that, the, that you know my heart and my desire to be in your will and that that's enough. And that you'll guide and bless the direction I'm going in, even if it's not what you originally planned on, because you know my heart and you know that that's my goals. I'm trying to follow you and follow your direction. And that you'll be with me every step of the way. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for that. Thank you. Thanks, I Thank our friend Lauren. Maybe she'll put Job on her Christmas card this year. <laughs> that is not happening, she said. Um, I love that, though. I love um, when I get to sit and hear these soap stories or get to hear things going on in your group. I love that some of us have had experience with this method before where we really stop and break things down. And then some of us, it's brand new, but it doesn't matter. God shows all of us things no matter what. Um, and for Lauren, it was, it was especially awesome because it was a verse that she just happened, just happened to mean the world to her, right? And that he showed her new things through that. So I hope that's happening for you as well. Um, be encouraged. And remember, whenever you think through um, that those soap questions and you, you write down the passages or portions of the passages in the scripture that kind of mean something to you, and then you observe things like words and, and, and grammar or repetitive things, or you have a bullet list of all these things that God's saying, when you get to the application, consider this. It doesn't have to look the same every, every day. And it's not going to look the same. Like some days for me, the application is less about, Chris, you're going to take an action. And it's more about, hey, Chris, remember what happened in the past? I want you to understand that that was me working through it even when you didn't see it. Or sometimes the application is, is something that's like, I'm, I feel like I'm being prepared for something and I'm not quite sure what it is yet. And so don't lock yourself into the same repetitive nature, but rather just ask God, what do you want me to do with this? That's, that's a Chris prayer. You can have that. What do you want me to do with this? Um, and I love that we got to see that today through Lauren. So with that, we're going to take a look at chapter 4. We're going to um, go right to chapter 4 and start with the first couple of verses there. We're going to go through the 16 verses in chapter 4. and We're going to learn about 
what Paul wants us to understand about now taking this doctrine and moving it into doing, moving it into the duty that's involved. Remember the word that connects chapters 1 through 3 with chapters 4 through 6? What was the word? Therefore. Therefore. So all these things I've told you, man, I've been telling you three chapters of them. I've told you these things. Therefore, take it and go. That's what Paul's going to teach us. Um, Last week we talked about in chapter 3, remember, we talked about how Paul lays out for us the beauty of this new temple, right? And that Jesus is the cornerstone, the immovable cornerstone. And that, that the word of God is the foundation that we stand on. But the beautiful part is that he reminds us that we're part of the building process, aren't we? We're the living stones. We're the stones that build this temple. And, and, and then, you know, he has us talk about how he was a prisoner and he had a purpose. And then he moves us into humility and power and love and all the things that we need to understand, embracing the fact that Jesus loves us so much. And so now he says, okay, so all that is true. Therefore, we're going to take action. This week, Paul gives us three chapters. Um, uh, he takes those three chapters of doctrine, and he's not going to just turn us loose without a roadmap. Okay, he's going to give us instructions, and he's going to give us guide to doing um, God's will in midst of that doctrine. And so he's going to four ways he's going to do this. He's going to talk about we're going to go from wealth to walk, and he's going to talk about how we maintain unity how we do that in the midst of diversity, and then finally he's going to talk about maturity and what maturity looks like. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it up to chapter 4, verse 1, and we're just going to start right there, from wealth to walk. Paul says this in that first verse in chapter 4. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. A couple of words that pop out immediately to me were therefore, we just talked about that. Paul is basing these upcoming exhortations, this next whole three chapters, he's basing it all on those first three chapters. And then the word urge there, it's actually beseech in some of the other translations, that's the word beseech. And here's what's cool about that is he's saying that I've blessed you, but now it's your turn to respond to that. It's a response. It's an action that we're going to have to take. He says the word walk. Underline that in your Bible. You're going to see it a lot over the next part of Ephesians. That word becomes a key word in the last half of the book. And every time you see the word walk, and if you've been a Christian for very long or been involved in the church, you might have heard it. It's one of those Christian-y words that we say, how's your walk? Are you walking your talk or talking your walk? I don't know, whatever it is. Here's what it means, basically. It means this. It's how you're conducting your life. How are you conducting your life? Not how do you say you conduct your life or how do you look like you conduct your life, but how are you actually living your life, your walk? The word calling there also, when you think about the word calling, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, and if you're new with us, I just want you to write next to that word, write this. Your calling is to follow Jesus and try to live like Jesus. That's it. Don't try to make, um, don't try to, 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 you know, put God in a corner and say, my calling, what's my calling? Where do I work? What do I do? Who do I see? Who do I speak to? The calling is is simple. It's to follow him and be more like him. And so Paul's saying to us, hey, we've now, we know all this stuff. Jesus came and did all this stuff. He united us. He died for us. He reconciled us to him. We're now one. And so because of all that, our call is to follow him and try to live like him. And that's what we're going to do. 
He gives us three chapters of wealth, and now he's expecting us to walk. I, I thought about, whenever I was thinking through this, I'm like, gosh, that's the walk. Like, that's an interesting, when you think about the Christian life and how we're supposed to live that out, how does that look? Well, I immediately thought about things in my life um, that I've done that, that have had all these necessary, this background that was necessary before I could achieve what I was to achieve. And I thought about, has anybody ever hiked a mountain? Anybody like hiking mountains? Anybody not like hiking mountains? There we go. There's the hands. Okay. It's just a metaphor. It's just a picture, okay? You don't have to actually go hike anything. But I got to do it a few years ago, and um, the, the funny thing about hiking a mountain, if you've ever done it, and if you haven't, that's okay too. Stay awake. Stay with me. This is what's interesting. There are some things required. You don't just pull up in the parking lot and go for it, okay? Anybody ever done that? It's a real bad decision. Yeah, don't do that. Bad, bad, bad decision. In fact, a friend of mine, she's so funny, they hiked a mountain this year, but it was the, um, it was the second time they tried because the year before, they did it without seeking um, all the things that they needed to have before they did it, and they started at the wrong time, and so they weren't able to actually achieve the goal. But, but hiking a mountain, it's, it's like this. Okay, you've got to know a couple things. You've got to have a couple things in your toolkit before you take off. First thing you've got to have is you've got to know where you're going. That makes sense, right? And it's not just, hey, look at that. We're going to go there. Because it doesn't work like that, does it? When you see those mountains, there's like a bazillion of them. And, and it looks like they're real easy to get to, but you need a map or you need a plan. So you need to know where you're going. You need to have a map or a trail or a plan to get there. You need to also have supplies. You need to know what supplies to bring, right? You've got to stay hydrated. You've got to bring food to fuel you along the way. You've got to have rain gear. There's a lot of stuff you've got to bring. You can't just park the car, bring the keys, and take off. Well, this is also important. You need to know when it's wise to go. Um, that's the downfall of most people who attempt to climb a mountain. Did you know that? That's where the danger lies, is not knowing when to go. If you don't leave when it's still dark outside, it ain't going to be pretty. So you got to know where to go, what to bring, and when to take off. And here's the most important part about hiking a mountain. Ready? Most important part. Put a big star. you got to get up and go. <laughs> you got to do it. And so when you're thinking through what Paul's telling us, he's giving us, he's saying, hey, guys, I've given you the map. I'm giving you the map. I'm giving you all the supplies and all the information you need. And, and that's all fantastic. But if you don't actually get up and go, it's, it's not going to mean anything. All of us can pack our backpacks up, and then we can take a nap. We're not going to see the peak. And so as you think through this and you listen to Paul speaking, I want you to consider that he is fueling us up and hydrating us up and giving us the tools and the map and everything we need to get to the peak, okay? From wealth to the walk. And now we put on our hiking shoes and we take off. Well, he's trying to explain to us here that, that there is unity is important and we need to maintain unity. So in, in verse 2, he starts with that. He talks about how... Um, all the, all the tools and all the, uh, the things that we must possess to be able to maintain unity. Paul wants us to understand that the oneness of believers that's already been achieved through Jesus Christ is our responsibility to guard and protect and preserve. We have to do that so that we could get up and go. So in verse 2, he gives us a pretty um, clear little laundry list of five things that we can use to help us maintain that unity. Verse 2 goes like this. He says, With all humility, gentleness... Patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond 
of peace. And so Paul is giving us a directive right from the very beginning, isn't he? He's not just mentioning all those words just because they sound pretty. He's saying, these are gifts that you've been given in your backpack through Jesus Christ. And now you got to take action and you got to live them out. What does that even look like? Five things, he says. Humility is the first. Humility. And I've, the way I was looking at this, when I was going through this, I thought, you know, some of these words sound really um, familiar to me and I understand what they mean, but, but I, I need to apply a question to it so that, so that Chris will actually take it into account in her own life instead of looking at the rest of you and go, you guys ain't humble. Y'all need to be humbler. Y'all need, right? It's about me. It's about what is he saying to me right now on my walk, on my hike. Humility, that word, it's interesting. In Greek literature, first century Greek literature at the time that this was written, that was not a popular word. Surprising? Would you say it's probably not a popular word now? Um, The word that was probably more highly valued at the time was the word pride. And that's where um, a lot of the people in this day and age felt like there was value. They didn't see the value in being humble. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. Okay, so think about that for a minute. It's not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself. Rather, it's thinking of yourself less. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility. Once we think, I've got this humility thing down, you've lost it, right? Because humility is, is, in essence, asking yourself, who do I think of first? In every situation that I encounter, who do I think of first? Who is at the center of the entire thing? I know the answer to that. A lot of times it's Chris. My decisions that I make are all about, well, how's that going to affect me? How am I going to feel? Who do I think of first? The second, gentleness. In some translations, it says the word meekness. Meekness, and I think a lot of times that society makes that word seem like a bad word. Um, I want you to consider this. This word, this definition, it's less about being timid or weak, and it's more about power under control. Power under control. You know who was described as being the most meek of all men in Numbers 12, verse 3? Moses. He led God's people. He challenged the throne of Egypt and led them out of captivity, didn't he? That was tremendous power. Jesus was described as being meek and lowly in heart in Matthew eleven twenty nine, He drove out the money changers. He faced Satan himself. He hung on a cross for us when he could have changed that. There was nothing about him that was weak, but instead it was power. Do I allow harshness and bitterness seep out of my words or actions? Or am I, do I have power under control? Meekness, gentleness. Paul goes on to tell us that um, by, by, we can unify the spirit if we possess um, patience. Who loves praying for patience? Everybody? I'm going to pray all of you for patience. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that to you. And it's not cool. Patience or long-suffering. Hey, um, when you hear that word, we think we know what that means, but I want to I give you a different twist on it. It's less about honking at the person in line at Starbucks who's not moving when they're supposed to. Do you know those people? Yeah, they need to look up from their phones. But it's less about that, and it's more about enduring and relying on the timing of God, isn't it? It's, if I can have the ability to endure discomfort without fighting back, that's godly patience. 
Because I tell you what, I, I, I think the problem is a lot of times we decide that the way that we want to earn patience is to be removed from in situations where we have to be patient, right? But instead, God says, hey, guess what? Um, sometimes you're going to endure discomfort. Anyone? Sometimes you're going to endure pain and struggling, and there's going to be no end in sight. And you're just going to have to keep on enduring and trusting my timing. Am I a slave to the tyranny of my agenda? Am I a slave to the tyranny of my perspective and my priority? Humility, gentleness, patience. And then the fourth thing Paul brings up is accepting one another in love. And that can be also termed as forbearance. Accepting one another in love. The thing that's interesting about this is when you talk about accepting one another, did you notice that he added a prepositional phrase there? He said in love. He didn't leave that off. He was very intentional there. Because it's important. It's important that we have to know that we can't accept people apart from love. He's not just saying put up with each other and fake it. He's saying do it in love. Um, okay, so as you're thinking through this, you're probably like already moved past this. You're like, okay, that's easy. I can totally do that. Okay, now I want you to quit thinking about the easy relationships you have in your life. Okay? The people that are easy to love. I want you to think about the hardest person. I want you to think about the person that, that are you ready? as if this actually happened to me once before, with the, the person that is just your sandpaper person, right? The person that you go to sit down to have a nice relaxing day and sit in the pedicure chair and your feet soaking in the water and she sits down right next to you. She's like, hey, what's up? Not that that's ever happened to me. And any of you that sat by me in a pedicure chair, it's not you. But anyway, it's that person. When you talk about accepting one another in love, it's not accepting my, the easy people in my world. It's accepting this person in love. It's hard stuff. Do I apply unrealistic, idealistic expectations on others, or do I accept them in love? Paul goes on. He gives us one more. He says that we're to eagerly keep unity. Eagerly keep unity. Now, this verb here is active. It's not passive. And he's not saying we create unity, okay? That's God's deal. That's his deal. We are simply to maintain it. We must eagerly keep unity. Listen, that's work. Uh, Lauren was talking a minute ago. There's, there's times, right, where we have to do things that we just don't want to do because we don't want to sweat and we don't want to work and we don't want to lace up our shoes. This one is work. Think about this. Um, for example, when you get married, if, if you get married, if you've attended a wedding, you see them stand up there and it is precious, right? Like everything is precious and beautiful and we're in love and love is going to keep us together and love is going to be all the things. Well, love is really great, but if you don't eagerly work at unity, that thing is not going to work. Love is not going to be the thing that holds it together. What's going to hold it together is eagerly keeping unity with the foundation of love and truth. Interestingly here, the verb there is a present participle. You know what that means? That means it is a constant. It's not saying you eagerly kept love or you eagerly. It's saying you are constantly, eagerly keeping unity. Constantly. It doesn't matter if you've known Jesus for five minutes or 50 years. You are constantly going to have to fight this battle. A conscious choice to follow and be who God wants you to be to be able to keep that unity. You have to eagerly seek it. Do I let indifference or passivity define my walk, or am I eagerly keeping unity? You know, Christianity is a team sport, and, and, and the deal here is Paul's kind of laying it out for us and saying, if, if we don't have unity, no matter how different we are, because we're different, if we don't have unity, then Christianity cannot stand. Do you realize that? 
So he goes into this next part and says, okay, these are all the things that you have to do to preserve unity, to maintain unity. Now he's going to say, okay, now here's the deal. I've already know that God has already done this. So God in himself, in the Godhead of who he is, he's a, he has already recognized that God has established oneness. And he goes through and gives us a list of those ways that God has unified. Okay, We're going to move through him fast. In verse 4, he says that there is one body. One body. Now, remember, when he mentions the body here, he's talking about all of us having diverse backgrounds. At the time, the church at Ephesus, right, they had, there were some Gentiles and some Jews, and so they all had this weird background, and everybody came from different places, but the beautiful thing is they are united as one body of believers. Have you ever heard the term, the church? And I don't mean this place. I don't mean a building. The church. Sometimes people call it the big C church, okay? When you hear that term, the church, which you're going to hear it sometimes in the book of Ephesians, we'll talk about it. It's the reference to the body. It's the body of believers. And that's what he's talking about here. There's one. There's one big C church. There's a whole bunch of little C churches. There's like a ton. Rock Point is one of them. One body. One spirit. When he mentions the Spirit, he's saying by the work of the Holy Spirit, when you've accepted Jesus, when you've had a transformation for Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in and he ain't leaving. Amen? Anybody happy about that? Be, be happy. It's what happened at Pentecost in Acts 1st um, first, first and 2nd Acts. That's the first time that we see the Holy Spirit come on believers because that's when Jesus ascended to go be with his Father. And he doesn't just leave us hanging in the wind. Amen? He leaves us with the Holy Spirit. So he says, one body, one spirit, one hope. The one hope is the pledge and promise to every believer of eternal inheritance. It's also the hope of his promised return. Okay, one hope. One Lord. This is interesting. I've mentioned before that when you see the word Lord in the New Testament, it's referring to who? Jesus, right? Not God the Father, but Jesus the Son. This here, uh, when he says one Lord, that would be a huge confession with deadly implications. It would mean that basically he's saying there is one Lord and it is not Caesar. There is one Lord and he is one with the Hebrew God. And so this is huge when he says one Lord. This would, have a, this would be a moment for them to be going, wow. Okay. And, and here's what's interesting. You feel like, I don't know if you feel this way. This may be just me. But I feel like, okay, Paul, we've, we got it. You've said it a million times. Check, 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 check. And I immediately thought about, all the people that come to church and sit in the chairs every week and hear every week hear Ron say, um, this is who Jesus is, and if you haven't accepted him and you don't have eternal life, and he died and lived and died and, and, and lived a death, uh, died a death that you should have died, and instead he took it on. And I hear that every week, right? And I'm like, okay, we've heard it, we've heard it. But you know what? We sit in these chairs and we don't hear it, do we? There's times when God opens our eyes that we haven't heard. And so he's reiterating all of this that he's actually probably said many times over to these followers because he wants them to remember. He wants to open their eyes to this truth. One Lord, one faith, that's the doctrine revealed in the New Testament. That's Jesus coming to save. One baptism. When he's saying baptism here, know this, he's not talking about a symbolic water baptism. Instead, he's talking about, again, being baptized with the Holy Spirit. That occurs at the moment of conversion. And then lastly, he says there's one God, one Father. We share the same Father. Ephesians 1.5 reminds us that we are adopted in now. All of us have the same outcome. He's reiterating these truths to them because sometimes people sitting in the chairs don't hear them until they do. 
Unity relies on a firm foundation of truth and love. Paul wants to be sure that his flock understood doctrine so they wouldn't fall victim to false teachers. It's important. Well, he, he talks about being unified, and he talks about all these gifts that we have, right, that we have access to, the humility and, and the patience and all those things. We have access to all of that, either even if we don't tap into it. But then he talks about how diverse the gifts are, doesn't he? He goes in verse 7, verses 7 through 12, he talks about, he moves from what we all have in common, and he moves into how believers differ from each other. I love this part. I love being reminded that we are not all on the same. I mean, unity doesn't mean sameness. We're all different. We look different. We see different. We, we hear different. We speak different. You're seeing it in your groups when you talk about your homework, aren't you? That we see things differently and then God speaks to us in different ways. Well, in verse 7, he, um, he goes back to Psalm 68, which is interesting. I'll talk about that in a minute. And then he reminds us a little bit about the deity of Jesus. So follow along with me in verse 7. Paul says this, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. We're going to talk about those gifts in just a second. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And this is key. And he gave them, verse 12, to do this, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The beginning of this section, he quotes Psalm 68. And if you do the cross-references, if you've looked anything up, I I hope that you have. If not, that's what he's referencing here. Um, Interestingly, when he references this psalm, it's a psalm written by King David, and it's about the plunders, um, the spoils that come after you defeat an enemy. Okay, But here's what Paul does. He changes it up a little bit. He, he doesn't directly quote Psalm 68. He kind of summarizes it, and then he puts Christ as the one who um, actually defeated the foes. And when he says captives here, this is what's crazy. He's actually referring to us as captives. It's kind of like how Paul always says that he's a prisoner of Christ. It's the same idea, is that we were once prisoners of sin, of death, but now he's rescued us. And so now we're captives of his. Paul kind of changes the meaning. Warren Wearsby, he's a, he's, a, he's a Bible scholar guy, and he says this. I thought this was an interesting assessment. He says, the picture here is of a military conqueror leading his captive and sharing the spoils with his followers. Only in this case, the captives are not his enemies, but actually his own. Sinners who were once held captive by sin and Satan have now been taken captive by Christ. Even death itself is a defeated foe. Paul quoted Psalm 68, applying Jesus Christ, a victory song written by King David. I love that. Paul's going to take this beautiful, um, this song, this victory song that the Jewish believers would have recognized, remember? And he's going to use it to point to Jesus. And so that's what he talks about there. Then we get into that section of the descending and the ascending and all the da-da-da-da-da, right? Everybody love that part? Were you all like, okay, we're going to skip. I'm moving past this. Okay. Well, l- let me simplify it for you a little bit. All he's talking about here is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Incarnation, when I say that word, that means God becomes man. 
God comes to earth, puts on skin, fully man, fully God. That's what incarnation means. So when you see that going up and down and everything, he's basically trying to give proof of Jesus' deity. Okay, Because he's saying he came to earth, he lived on earth as a man, he endured everything that we do as men, everything, everything, everything. But then he ascended to the right hand of God. Fully God, fully man. That's what he's trying to prove there. If you want to do some further reading, he, he expounds on that idea a little bit more in his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, he talks about how um, Jesus emptied himself and he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And then he goes on to say that eventually the name of Jesus, every, name, every knee will bow, will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. He is fully God. He goes on to use the term grace. When he says here in verse 7, he says, but grace was given to each one of us. And then he goes into those dudes, right? Like he says the apostles and the prophets and those dudes, right? Well, think of it this way. He's trying to say those are gifts. I'm giving these as gifts. And who are they gifts for? They're gifts to equip the who? Verse 12. The saints. Who are the saints? They're us. I know they're also a football team. I got that. I love that though, right? Think of it this way. Have you ever stopped to think for a minute that the apostles and the prophets and the pastors and the teachers and the evangelists were a gift to you? I've never thought of that. I've never thought of it. It's the gift that he gave us because he knew what we needed. And not only did he know what we needed, he knew we needed to be equipped, didn't he? And we'll get to that in a minute. The gifts that he gave us, these gifted men that he gave us, um, and when I say men, I mean men and women, okay? When he gave us these gifts, this is not an exhaustive list, by the way. This isn't all the positions of gifts that God gives. This is just a few that Paul just decides in this moment that need to be talked about, okay? The first is this. He says, the apostles and the prophets, I'm going to lump them together, and here's why. They were the foundation of the church, the apostles and the prophets. But here's why I'm lumping them together. Because the apostles were the eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, okay? They were the eyewitnesses. They were the dudes on the scene. He appeared to them specifically, okay? So their words mattered. It wasn't like so-and-so saw so-and-so, told so-and-so, told so-and-so. It was like these guys were there, okay? Those are the apostles. The technical sense is they were guys that were called or sent specifically by Jesus and eyewitness to his um, risen nature, okay? Now the prophets, there's Old Testament prophets and there's New Testament prophets, Okay? You know what prophets are? Prophets are simply the mouthpiece of God. Did you know that? When you see words written by prophets, it's basically God has something to say, and he's going to use these guys to tell us. Now, the reason I lumped them together is because neither are necessary anymore on this earth after Jesus Christ came and God's word was left. Neither are necessary. Are there still apostles in the technical sense? No. Are there still prophets in the technical sense that are the mouthpiece of God? No. Because he said everything he needs to say. This is a complete book. Amen? Nothing needs to be added to it. So when he says apostles and prophets, he's talking about past tense. Now, he then goes into some other categories that are, that are not past tense, that we still encounter today, doesn't he? The next um, gift, gifted person that he shares about are evangelists. Evangelist. Now, when you see that word, think of it this way. These people are called to proclaim the gospel. Called to proclaim the gospel. Everyone is called to evangelize in some way, but some people are uniquely gifted. Let me give you an example. 
I have a friend who is uniquely gifted in the art of evangelizing, okay? Um, she, she's this person. She's my friend, Amy, who has, um, has had, had, had um, breast cancer last year. And so we walked through that, that with her. And here's, here's, a, here's a true um, definition of an evangelist when you get to see this live and in person. Amy's the one who, when we go out to lunch and we're all sitting in the booth and Chris is worried about ordering a Diet Coke and tacos, I look over and I'm like, Amy, it's your turn to order. Where'd Amy go? Amy's gone. Amy is gone. There were six of us in the booth. We're like, where did she go? We start looking around the restaurant. You know where she is? She saw across the restaurant that there was a guy that had attempted to walk his check and he got busted. And so he's sitting there waiting and they're, they're I don't know what they're going to do. Call the police, get the manager. I don't know what they're doing. But the guy's sitting there defeated at a table full of food and beer and all this stuff. And he's sitting there knowing I'm about to have to face um, what I did. And my friend Amy is sitting in the booth with him and she puts her hand on his shoulder and she says, we're going to cover your check. Do you know Jesus Christ? That's Amy. Amy's the one who, the day that she found out she had breast cancer, I was with her, and we go after we get the terrible news that feels like it's going to ruin everything. And we go to have lunch, and we're going to sit, and we're going to pray, and we're going to cry, and we're going to do the things that you do when you're trying to figure out this messy thing. And, and we're walking into the restaurant. Guys, no joke. We're walking into the restaurant. We get out of the car, and I turn around, and Amy's gone again. She's gone again. Oh, where's Amy? You know where Amy was? There was a guy at the stop sign, like um, on the other side of the parking lot, holding a sign up that says, we'll work for food, need money, need help. And Amy's over there with her hand on the guy's shoulder. And I walk up like, what are you doing? This is about you. We're supposed to go in and do the thing. And, and she's like, this is not about me. And she puts her hand on the guy and she says, what do you need? And, and I don't think he knew how to answer that. Um, she said, no, what do you need? Tell me what you need. And he says, I need shoes. She goes, okay, done. And then she said, do you know Jesus Christ? And he said, well, yeah, I do. And she said, do you have a Bible? And he said, well, not anymore. And she goes, I'm going to Walmart. We're going to get you shoes and a Bible. I'll be right back. And so you know what we did? We went to Walmart. We got shoes and a Bible. That's an evangelist. Who in your life is doing that? Here's, here's what I hope you walk away with knowing this. There are people doing that everywhere, and I don't know what impact it had on the guy with no shoes. I don't know what impact it had on the guy who tried to walk his check, but I do know that that's her heart. And one time I felt really bad about the fact that that's not my heart, and she reminded me we all have different gifts. Her gift is evangelism. Pastors, Paul mentions pastors here. Now, when you think about a pastor, they're not just teachers. They're shepherds. God's given them a flock, okay? When he's given them a flock, he's given them um, uh, people who they're to nurture and defend and protect and lovingly prod and gently or firmly correct. Sometimes that pastor will leave you a sonic drink on your porch when he knows you're going through a hard time. That's a pastor. But here's the thing. I want to give you um, just a little, this is a little tip. Don't trip up the shepherd, Okay, we as the flock, we are the flock, and there are people that have been called to pastor us, and you know what we do to mess that up? We hide. We hide, and we don't make our needs known, and, and, and we don't receive well, right? So I want to tell you right now, don't mess up his job, because his job is to love and to lead, and when we hide, and we don't tell what our needs are, and we don't tell what, um, what we need to be prayed for, we don't step out in, um, amidst the flock, then he can't do his job, pastors.
evangelists, pastors. And finally, um, he shares with us about teachers. I, I don't know about you, but I got people in my life, I can name them right now, Roz Duffy and Margaret Ashmore, and they're the two people that made God's word come alive to me. A time when I didn't think I really needed this, where I knew I accepted Jesus, and isn't that all you have to do? And little did I know that God wanted to open this thing up for me, and now look what he's done. There are teachers that their job is, is, is to make scripture understandable, attainable, and relevant to your life. Who are those people? Are you those people? You might be those people. I didn't think I was those people. But let me remind you of this. All pastors are teachers. All teachers are not pastors. Okay? All teachers are not pastors. They're two different people. Well, I need to move fast, as usual. Um, he goes on to tell us that, that the whole reason he gives us these gifts of these, these vocations or these giftings that he gives is to do what? To equip the saints, to equip us. So when you see this, I want you to understand, and, and I think Paul is trying to tell us this too, remember, you are being equipped. And he's not just saying, I want to I, I give them these gifts so that they're comfortable and they can hang out and do nothing. He's equipping them, isn't he? Because what he's trying to say is, guys, on this walk, we work. On the walk, we work. Are you, um, what are you doing with your gifts? You may not be one of these five, th- five things, but maybe you're this person. Are you this person? Are you the person that holds the door? Are you the person that parks the cars? Are you the person that makes the casseroles? Are you the person that takes care of kids? Do you stack chairs? I don't know what you do, but you need to understand this. Paul wants us to know that we are being equipped so that we can serve and love. Your life is bigger than a good job or an understanding spouse or non-delinquent children. Okay? It's bigger than that. It's bigger than everything, all the circumstances being okay and and you having a fat bank account and, and a great car and a cool neighborhood and a nice pool. It's more than that. You're part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God's rescuing fallen humanity. He gave us gifts to equip us to do the work, to lace up the shoes, take the hike to the top of the mountain. Well, he goes on, Paul goes on, um, and we have exactly three minutes to cover three verses. I feel like God is a God of miracles. He can make this happen. It'll happen. I believe it. I believe it. It'll happen. Uh, He wants us to be mature. And this is important, and don't miss this, that it is important for us to understand that the result of unity and the result of diversity is that the church becomes mature. And when I say mature, I don't mean only in experience or age. Um, some, some things come with time and experience, right? Some wisdom, some maturity comes with that. But I want to encourage you. If you met Jesus five minutes ago, God's got a maturing that he wants to do in you right now because some maturity comes with wisdom and awareness. Amen? I tell you what, there's a lot of things that God has matured in me, and it's not just because I'm older than I was when I came to know him. It's because he's made me aware of things, and he's provided wise people and God's word and a seeking after him that's made me mature. Don't be vulnerable. we got to grow in maturity all the time. He, He compares us to being children, doesn't he? He talks about how we're childlike, and if we're childlike and where we stay in our faith, then we can be tossed to and fro. And what he's trying to say there is, if you are not growing up in your faith, hear this, even if you've accepted Jesus, you are susceptible to follow false doctrine. You are susceptible to following teachers that claim they're teaching truth, but it's lies. How do you know? How do you even know? 
well, I got a 16-year-old daughter, and let me tell you, she's driving now. So, yeah, you, we, we could pause and pray for everyone. <laughs> now, she's a great driver. But here's the thing. When she turned 16, I didn't toss her the keys and go, have fun, did I? She had to mature in her understanding and her development of being able to go out and drive because here's what's happening. If I have a 16-year-old kid and I toss her the keys and go, say, have fun, you know who's going to teach her how to drive? The other 16-year-olds. And that's bad news. False teachers, those 16-year-olds, right? I got to teach her the way so that then she can know, no, this is what we're supposed to do at a stop sign, not do what Susie does when I'm in the car with her. I've got to trust that I know what's truth. And that's what Paul's trying to explain to us. We need to grow in our Christ-likeness. We need to grow in our knowledge. That's what you're doing when you're here. We need to grow in truth and love. Listen, when he talks about truth and love, they're combined as one word. They're one thing. Because here's the thing. If you have truth without love, it's brutal, isn't it? And if you have love without truth, it's hypocrisy. I love my daughter so much. I love her so much that I forced her to learn how to drive with me. I love her so much that even when it was difficult and she couldn't get that parallel parking down, it took some time, let me tell you. Even then, even when it was hard, even when she didn't understand, even when she felt like she had it all together, I knew that she had to practice with me because she had to learn. If I would have just said, oh, I love you so much, you're so cute, here's the car keys, that's not real love, that's hypocrisy. Truth and love, they're not to be separated. And the last thing he wants us to understand about how we grow in maturity is this, and I hope you hear this and write this down. He wants us to grow in contribution. What does that even mean? You've been equipped. There are saints that are in this room right now that have been equipped. There are people in this room that have sat in this chair for years and have never stepped out to contribute. What are the things that God's calling you to do? We're a body, and a body has different parts and has different functions and different things that it's supposed to do. Evangelists, pastors, teachers, all the things work together. Door holders, casserole makers, chair stackers. We are one body, and we are one body working together to draw people to Jesus Christ. What is he calling you to do? It's a team sport. I've learned more about Jesus Christ. I have grown more in my faith And I have leaned more on scripture and I have been pushed more outside of the truth of Chris and more toward the truth of God by serving and loving other people, especially the pedicure chair people. I I don't know what this means to you, but I want to tell you right now that Paul is very intentional about the fact that we need to take action. We don't just take a backpack full of information and a map and supplies and go sit on the couch. We put on our shoes and we go. And we get up and we hike. Will you pray with me? Father, um, I don't know what the walks in this room look like right now, but I feel like Paul is calling all of us to wake up to the gifts that he's given us and the people that he's gifted us with in our lives to equip us. Lord, um, we want to do well. We want to finish strong. We want to point to you. We want to hike the mountain, even when it's hard. Um, God, show us those places that we need to take what you've given us, the doctrine of who you are, and take it and make it into action and to do your word, not just study it. Thank you, God, for this time. Um, We thank you for your intentionality with the word, that this week, whoever was here today, whoever is listening online needs a word from you, God, so make it clear for us today. And thank you that you love us enough to give us truth and love. 
We thank you for your son. In Jesus' name, amen.